0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Unchained, I'm your host, Laura Shin. This is a special episode of Unchained from the Oslo Freedom Forum in New York. There I spoke with Alejandro Machado, a researcher at Ccash. Amber Balday, founder and CEO of Clover, a decentralized software and developer tools company, Andy Bromberg, co-founder and president of CoinList, a compliant token offering platform, and Mega Pollan, correspondent for BuzzFeed and former China bureau chief. The topic of our panel was Why Decentralization Matters. In this discussion, we cover what is happening in authoritarian regimes like China and Venezuela that highlight the importance of decentralized technologies, how people in those countries are using crypto assets, and how people in authoritarian regimes can even get access to these technologies. Plus, we also look at how bad state actors are using the same technology to oppress people or evade sanctions. It's a fantastic discussion with some looks at the -the on-the-ground usage of decentralized technologies. Enjoy. StartEngine is a regulated ICO platform with a community of
1: 155,000-plus registered users that's focused on issuing tokenized securities. Go to startengine.com slash unchained for a 20% discount on setup services to launch your regulated ICO. This is not legal advice.
0: Looking to advertise your product on Unchained and Unconfirmed? Reach out to Raylene at laurashinpodcast at gmail.com to find out about sponsorship opportunities. Again, that's Laura Shin, L-A-U-R-A-S-H-I-N, podcast at gmail.com to find out about sponsorship opportunities on Unchained and Unconfirmed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's working lunch here at the Oslo Freedom Forum in New York. Apparently, this uh, monitor in front of me says that the topic is actually why decriminalization matters. Um, but just, just oh. want to let you know, there's been no change to the, to the program. It's why decentralization matters. Um, my name is Laura Shin, and I'm a journalist covering the crypto space. And I host two podcasts in crypto called Unchained and Unconfirmed and I've been covering this space for about three and a half years now, and oftentimes when people find out that I cover crypto, they say things to me like, oh, it's only good for speculation, and they don't see the use of it, blah, 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 and I find myself having to explain that, of course, you know, here in the U.S. and other um, kind of more developed countries, we have really well-functioning money, we have good financial services, and so for us, we have money we can trust and services we can trust, and so, of course... You know, if you live in a society like ours, it sort of does feel like what is the use of this. Um, but in today's discussion, we'll be diving into how more author- authoritarian societies actually highlight the need for technologies like this, um, for technologies that governments cannot shut down, or censor, or otherwise control. And here to discuss this topic are Alejandro Machado, who is a researcher at Zcash. She's on the way in the end there. And next to Alejandro is um, Amber Balde, who's the co-founder and CEO of Clover, which is a decentralized software and developers tool, developer tools company. Andy Bromberg is... Uh, next to Amber, and he is the co-founder and president of CoinList, which is a compliant token offering platform. And next to me here is Meg- Mega Roger Copalin, co- correspondent for BuzzFeed and the former China bureau chief. So I figured the way we would structure the discussion is kind of like some of the on-the-ground um, details of what's going on in some of these more oppressive uh, regimes. So why don't, Alejandro, why don't you start with kind of like what's been going on in Venezuela and how um, those... Uh, trends there highlight the need for decentralized and censorship-resistant technologies.
2: Yeah. So, uh, can you all hear me? Hi, uh, my name is Alejandro. I'm uh, born and raised uh, in Venezuela. I lived there until 2015. I am now traveling, and uh, I well, I studied computer science, and then I did a product design. I have product design background as well. I stumbled upon crypto uh, last year. Um, and I realized the potential that it has in societies like, like my own. And I've never really, like, ever since I left Venezuela. Well, I left because it's very difficult to do work there. Uh, the internet speeds are really slow. And, uh, I mean, there's no community. There's, like, there's very little uh, to do if, if, you, if you just work there and, and focus there. Especially if you are um, working towards freedom or towards... Uh, living in a society that uh, resembles more like yeah like a free market state. So uh, I think that one of the big problems that we have today in Venezuela is uh, authoritarianism and censorship. We have uh, a lot of newspapers that have been closed. Uh, if you tweet, there's a law that uh, you, like, you can go to jail for tweeting against the president or you know any, anyone in government. They apply this very selectively, but it happens. And it's just like a way to scare people into, like, submission. And um, besides that, there is horrible economic mismanagement, which I think we're going to talk more about. And uh, decentralization matters in Venezuela because of censorship, because of, like, like, control of information, but I think even more so for control of money. The government of Venezuela has debased the currency incredibly and uh, we are now experiencing hyperinflation that has been going on since December of, of last year. So we have like a couple million percent inflation uh, this like for for a year, uh, like from, from last year to, to this year. Uh, it's just unimaginable. In the United States, I think three four percent inflation is like already too much. We have in the order of millions of percent. So. Yeah, I actually
0: just to jump in here, I copied some stats from this article that came out in PC Mag. If anyone is interested in learning more about this, but they were saying that um, Bloomberg apparently has this Café con Leche index, and it tracks the fluctuating price of a cup of coffee at a bakery in in the capital of Caracas. And in August 2016, a coffee cost 450 bolivars, and this past July, a cup of coffee cost 1.4 million bolivars. So,
2: yeah, it's insane. Uh, So, the problem with this is the government has no idea how to have a responsible monetary policy. And so, we are locked into a system where we depend on very bad bureaucrats and very bad people that don't know what they're doing. And, well, maybe they know what they're doing and they, they they are fine with making us all poorer. And you have no access to a currency like the US dollar or the euro or other like national currencies, but you do have access to Bitcoin and you do have access to other open money systems. And that is where the game changes. And I think that states like ours, they have not realized how much of like a disruption this could be. And you know, like they became famous last year because they ran the I- ICO of the Petro, which was a complete disaster. But I think that we, wa- what we would like to focus on more is the potential benefits Of cryptocurrency for the average citizen for for accessing a money system that is open and that anyone can can opt into
0: and can you actually dive into more detail on how everyday people in Venezuela are trying to use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and then on the flip side give a little bit more details on what happened with the petro ICO
2: sure thing Uh, so I have a few friends uh, I mean I I, as I said I grew up there so I I have many friends who are still there and uh, for example, there's this friend who's a doctor, a medical doctor, has a postgraduate and everything. He earns about ten dollars a month uh, being a doctor, uh, you know, performing, you know, like arguably the best service that you could do for society. Ten dollars a month, and uh, that's obviously not enough to to eat and to have like a normal life. So he stumbled upon cryptocurrency mining about two years ago or so. So he started mining Ethereum, and uh, that's how he makes a living, like a more proper living. He earns about $150 a month by mining Ethereum. And he recently told me that his... uh, So Venezuela is a very complicated place, like, infrastructurally. uh, It's also very violent, and, you know, like, there's just complete chaos going on right now. So they told me that his, like, the wires of his, like, wired internet connection were stolen because they, they wanted, like, the thugs wanted to sell the copper in the black market because they... It's just, like, something that is easy to steal and, and resell. Uh, so he's without internet, but he's still mining uh, through his 3G connection. So he's, it's 60% efficiency. So he's not earning quite the 150 he used to earn, but still quite enough to, to sustain a living.
0: And then go into more details on the Petro ICO.
2: Yeah, the Petro ICO. Uh, so Maduro, like, what were, like very scammy people trying to do last year like a, like an easy way to get money I think like the, the trendiest thing to do was to run an ICO right that, not to say that they were, they were not legitimate ICOs they were absolutely, absolutely fantastic projects that I think ran very responsible ICOs but I think it was also like if, if you look at the space just the numbers they were rife with like very bad projects that just wanted to make a quick buck and exit so the government saw that and since they're con artists they, they're they like dealing narcotraffic they, they deal in like uh, you know Lots of uh, shady businesses, uh, kidnappings. And, like they, they make a, a living with all of these, like very like questionable activities for society. Uh, they um, uh, were al- also got into ICOs, and like, because they, they just saw it as a quick way to make money. And um, they tried to raise. They, they say they wanted to raise like six billion dollars. Uh, they have not specified how much they actually raised, and I'm very skeptical of any claims that they make. Um, I think it was a complete disaster. Like, technically, like, the website didn't work the, the time that uh, it was supposed to be launching. I pretended to be a buyer, and I uploaded like a blank image as my passport to KYC, and they took it. So you could imagine like, the, the level of sophistication of, like, and like, you know, the, the way that been, they've been running things. I, I don't think that they actually were successful.
0: Yeah, and for people who don't know what an ICO is, just in case, it stands for initial coin offering, which is basically a way to crowdfund um, in cryptocurrency, and you um, the product that you give uh, to people is another cryptocurrency. Um, so I think like what's really really interesting about what's going on in Venezuela is that you see kind of like both sides of um, you know the potential in this technology. Obviously, there is a lot of um, positive that can come out of it—that you know you can uh, use it to uh, circumvent maybe like what oppressive regimes are trying to do. Um, however, then on the flip side, of course, you know they can use these technologies as well, which is what you know has been going on in Venezuela. Just so interesting. So let's find out more about what's going on, on the ground in China. Um, I think you know the focus there, or, or at least um, kind of the the things that the government is doing, highlights. Uh, you know what uh, other areas of technology we need decentralization for or censorship resistance for, so what are some of the things you're seeing on the ground in china
3: yeah um I think um one of the big things that uh, i have written about in China um over my six or seven years there is the kind of rising tide of government surveillance and that touches on a lot of different um aspects of p- the way people communicate um you know including um things like travel and spending money and um stuff like that um I guess uh, one of the biggest kind of um, life shaping things that has changed in China over the past couple of years is the rise of e payment. And um, e e-pay- payment there is just like very, very widely accepted. Like everybody from um, you know, homeless people on the street using QR codes to my like 95 year old Shanghainese landlady um, is like accepting e payment in lieu of cash. A lot of people think that cash in China is, is just not going to be used. Um, you know, in a couple of years. People um, have, like, the the culture around cash has changed so dramatically, um, like, to the point where uh, people find cash to be, like, dirty and, like, kind of inconvenient and, like, just don't even want to have it around anymore. And um, if you think about that from a privacy standpoint, it's actually really damaging. Um, So... WeChat is uh, owned by Tencent, obviously one of the biggest internet companies in the world. Um, Tencent is obligated by law to hand over um, information about users to various authorities within the Chinese government when asked. Um, if you know, for an internet company here, there's sort of a legal process for that. There's a, a subpoena that has to be filed. There's, um, you know, there's a level of evidence. There's a threshold that has to be met. Um, in China, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so you can see this in practice um, in terms of these kind of algorithmic or big data policing programs that are being rolled out um, across the country. Um, this is particularly egregious in places like Tibet and Xinjiang, which are home to ethnic minorities. These are like big, big regions in the country's west. Um, um, but it, it applies to really, um, you know, police departments all over the country. And um, one of the things that these police departments are doing um, is um, using a. A predictive policing system called the police cloud, um, which factors in lots of data from different areas of people's lives. Um, you know, it includes things like medical records, um, you know, whether you're taking birth control, um, your academic history, your performance reviews at work, but it also includes things like stuff that you pay for things like train tickets, uh, your stay at a hotel room, um, as well as things like social media, your online purchases, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and a lot of the information is gleaned from, um, tech companies, right? And um, there are documents in Chinese state media and in official reports that state that, um, you know, the police, in addition to people like petty criminals and stuff like that, they're specifically targeting dissidents and ethnic minorities. So from that point point of view, the kind of um, the aggregation of a lot of these kind of information into the hands of law enforcement and state security authorities can be really, really problematic from a freedom of expression and privacy standpoint.
0: Yeah, I think, I don't know if you know, um, but here even in the U.S., like if if a person goes missing or has been thought to commit a crime, one of the first things that they do is look at what their recent financial transactions were and stuff. So having kind of like all this taking place on these centralized systems that work with the Chinese government is actually hugely problematic in terms of privacy. Mm. Yeah, and there were a few other things that um, you also mentioned, like, uh, or well, actually, this one was a big one that's been in the media, which is credit scoring yeah. in China, but you said you didn't think it was such a big problem. Can you talk a little bit more about what's going on there? It's
3: not so much that I don't think it's such a big problem, but, like, basically uh, what Laura's talking about is something called the social credit system, which has gotten a lot of uh, press. Um, basically, the social credit system is, like, this collection of, of government programs um, at kind of all levels of government, um, from, like, local governments to, like, provincial level and, and so on, um, that basically uses a system of, like, rewards and incentives as well as punishments to get people to engage in desirable behavior, right? So like, um, you know, there's stuff like, like, the, the most kind of benign example is jaywalking, okay? So we don't want jaywalking, so we're going to install a big camera at that intersection and just, like, literally shame you by showing footage of you jaywalking. And um, the kind of vision of some of these programs is that a lot of these kinds of behaviors, like everything from, like, jaywalking and, like, turnstile jumping to the subway on the subway to, like, stuff like things that you say online um, is going to be kind of compiled and aggregated in some fashion and um, used in a way that assesses you and if, if you do well on some of these metrics, you can get certain advantages, things like getting discounts on airfares or um, making it easier for you to get a loan um, at a bank, for instance, to buy your house. Um, to punishments like being put on a blacklist where you can't buy, you know, luxurious train tickets um, and uh, flights to certain places and, and things like that. So all of these programs—it's kind of confusing because they all work in different ways um, depending on where you where you are. There's also private versions of these programs um, by like Ant Financial, which is the financial services wing of Alibaba and um, a few other companies like that. And um, right now, it's really, really unclear how these programs are going to fit together at a national level. But um, the reason that I brought that up with Laura is that um, I actually think the, these, are, uh, these programs, like while they're really important, from a privacy standpoint, they're actually less troubling than some of the other programs that are used by law enforcement that specifically target people that are thought to be problematic for the state, people like racial minorities, dissidents, and political opponents, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and one other thing that I wanted to highlight here was um, just in the days leading up to this event, we learned a little bit more about a new program that Google's working on called Google Dragonfly, which is the service, I think, that maybe they're looking to offer in China. And uh, just for me, as somebody who remembers Google as having been founded on the motto of you know not being evil, I was a little bit surprised by what I was reading. So, Megha, can you uh, summarize what, what they're thinking about doing?
3: Yeah so to be clear Google has basically said almost nothing about this except that there are, this is like a very early stage program but um, this was the story was broken by the intercept um, a few weeks ago and basically um, it's that Google is building kind of a censored version of its search engine I think it's a censored app to um, use in China um, so the history of this is that Google was in China until about 2010 and then um, ba- for a combination of factors one was that I think there were sort of suspicions of like a state-sponsored hacking attempt on them um, there were kind of like anti-competitive practices that were being used against Google um, and you know they had about a third, only about a third of the search market at the time. They they made this decision to pull out of China. Um, and in interviews around that time, Sergey Brin, um, you know, sort of alluded to his own personal history, uh, you know, as um, as someone who spent some formative years in his childhood um, in the Soviet Union and um, th- how that kind of made him feel about his company being party to um, like one of the world's most sophisticated internet censorship systems and. Um, th- Google being Google, they sort of drew a line in the sand, and everybody since has had to live up to that standard, right? That they're not going to be complicit in this kind of authoritarianism. Um, But that is really the subject of a lot of controversy within Google, I think, especially considering that China is is, uh, is the world's largest market for Internet users, you know, quickly growing and intensely powerful consumer class, it sort of led other people within the company to sort of question whether that's the right decision. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, I do think that other tech companies are going to be looking at this and saying, well, if China is going to, or sorry, if, if Google if Google is going to go along with um, Chinese government censorship, then, like, why, you know, why are we staying out of this market? Um, so these are companies like Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, who um, p- could probably get back into the Chinese market if they agreed to censor on um, the Chinese government terms. Terms, but, you know, haven't been successful in doing that so far.
2: And
0: then just to to get into Dragonfly, like, what, what are they going to be doing?
3: Um, Dragon, or, so Dragonfly would be the censored um, search, basically. Um, is right, I and I think yeah.
0: they're tying it to, like, yeah. people's individual phone numbers and stuff, so it is pretty... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, although, like, like you said, this isn't officially from Google. It's just... Because right, they not right, right,
2: only right. censored. They're also collaborating with the Chinese authorities. Like, they're giving yeah. information to the Chinese authorities, which could end up in deaths, right?
3: C- correct. So, so one of the big problems with this um, is that um, basically by Chinese law, they have to, under this um, project, they would have to serve... Or they would have to store user information on server, servers in the PRC, which essentially makes, like, information about Chinese users, um, like... it it makes it possible for government authorities to collect that information on demand, which is really, really problematic if you think about, um, like, the surveillance they're already carrying out on um, ethnic minorities and dissidents. So just to give you an idea, like, um, I've written a lot about this region called Xinjiang, which is in the west of China, um, and which has been in the news quite a lot recently. Um, Basically... People in Xinjiang, like uh, Muslim ethnic minorities there, are being sent to reeducation camps for like very, very small things, like things like having a photograph of a, of a mosque right on your phone, um, sending a text message to a relative that lives in Egypt or Turkey. All of these things are like reason enough for you to be sent to re-education camp. So if you think about that in the context of Google, right, if um, a police department in some town in Xinjiang says, I want information on what this person is searching for, and they search for something that has some some, like an Arabic pop song or a photo of the highest of fear or like whatever, um, that could be used as evidence against them um, to effectively incarcerate them for for months or more.
0: Wow. So this has been... Like, hugely, hugely interesting, um, especially for somebody who's always thinking about just blockchain and crypto and not kind of, um, you know, I guess more of these political issues. But um, Andy and Amber, I'm sure all the things that they were saying have sparked some ideas in your mind. And I'm just so, sort of curious, as the two technologists here, um, you know, what it is that you see people are building in uh, the world of decentralized projects that could address some of these um, actions being taken by these governments.
4: Sure. Um, Yeah, I I mean, building tools to thwart uh, authoritarianism isn't something that started with blockchain or crypto, right? I mean, this is something that's been going back decades, and if you trace back the um, evolution of internet protocols as well, there's a lot of geopolitics baked into how they're designed. Um, We take for granted that much of the the software that we use today uh, was developed in the West, and that it has been a generalized conduit for things like Wikipedia around the world. And um, soft power projection is something that all governments care about, and that's something that we, we achieve by getting ideas beyond things like the Great Firewall. Um, So how you build software absolutely matters. Uh, And it's not just about... um, Well, we're seeing this kind of odd dematerialization of, of... Speech and money and code, <laughs> where these used to be discrete different things, and now they're kind of all conflated, uh, and it's causing a lot of really interesting challenges and, and problems. So as you're speaking, as Alejandra's speaking about Venezuela, um, it's interesting because as a government releasing the petro, I mean maybe they're naive and silly and trying to make a quick buck, but they're also trying to circumvent global capital control systems and um, most other governments. Like uh, if, if you look at um, uh, well, several other governments are looking at how to digitize their version, their own sovereign currency. But they want to do that in line with existing monetary policy. They want to make sure that you can do quantitative easing. They want to make sure that you don't disrupt interest rate controls. But if your currency is failing, then you want to create something that has a completely separate fluctuation as a hedge against that. Um, and uh, you know, China as well has, is, is backing NEO as a separate um, project. And you see MasterChain in, in Russia as well. There's They're, they're all over the place, what, what these different countries are doing. So um, some of the things that that I am concerned about as we move forward, I guess, is how the um, very complex uh, geopolitical cyber threat landscape is now evolving to embrace and simply see, um, not decentralized technology necessarily, but when you start looking at at cryptocurrencies, um, them as simply a new landscape to enact the exact same policies. We really take... um, or there's this illusion of choice that we have uh, right now where it, it, it feels like you can choose um, you know, Visa or MasterCard or Amex or what have you, uh, but really it's all the same banking system. Um, when you get these tech providers that then collude behind the scenes where you can't necessarily consent to opt out because there is no longer a way to get off the grid, then the the software comes to kind of define the entirety of your life through these credit programs or otherwise.
0: Yeah, and I know Andy has some thoughts about, like, kind of different levels of censorship resistance or or decentralization, and I'm kind of curious to know about that, because I'm also... Yeah, well, let's just start there.
5: Yeah, sure. Yeah, just to tack on to to, to what Amber was saying there, I think the the, uh, Venezuela and China examples are really interesting, because they demonstrate that decentralization, if we're going to talk about how it can solve these problems, can solve wildly different problems. Talking about Venezuela, we were talking about currency issues and instability, and not talking about things like censorship and surveillance. And then talking about China, we're talking about censorship and surveillance and not talking about issues with the currency. Okay. Those are totally separate categories of issues. And what's so interesting about this technology, this decentralized technology, is that it can solve both of them. And so the analogy I think a lot of people use, it might be a little bit overused, is that it's a lot like this internet revolution that happened where the internet itself doesn't do anything specific for end users other than convey information. But that can be used to build a news website, it can be used to build a shopping website, it can be used to build a search engine, it can be used to build a whole bunch of things. And in the exact same way this decentralized technology can build a number of different applications on top of it that are used for wildly different purposes to solve wildly different problems. So when we think about these, they have different requirements. If we're aiming to solve currency issues, it doesn't necessarily have to be a totally massively decentralized system that is resistant to intervention by massive governments. What you need is the globalization aspect of it. So these decentralized technologies can be built anywhere in the world and can be used anywhere in the world that has access to protocols to to interact with them. And that's all you need for that. Now, the more decentralized it is, you might argue it's better, it's harder for governments to interfere, but you you might just need what people often call kind of platform-grade censorship resistance a censorship resistance and decentralization that just avoids single parties controlling it, which is the issue with most centralized services today, but controlled by a smaller set of people. But then if we're talking about things like censorship resistance and surveillance, we need these things to be massively, perfectly decentralized, so that even if a nation like China said, we're gonna try and attack this and get into it and get access to it, they wouldn't be able to. Those are very different technologies. So you look at um, the rise of, of stable coins, for example, which is a class of cryptocurrencies that are intended to be pegged to some sort of stable value, whether that's the US dollar, or the CPI, or some other sort of basket of goods. That is really useful for a country with massive currency instability. Um, But that is still pegged to something real and semi-centralized, and that might be okay for that specific use case. But then you look at something where you're trying to prevent China, a nation with unimaginable resources, both in terms of people and money and computing power, everything you can imagine from accessing that network, you really can't rely on anyone or anything. And so that's where this concept of kind of pure decentralization comes in, where you need a massive network of people around the world driving this forward, driving this network forward, uh, without relying on any specific party. So that, that, just to draw on the difference that Laura was alluding to, um, is often called in, in the crypto world kind of platform-grade censorship resistance and then sovereign-grade censorship resistance. And there are, there are trade-offs. Neither is objectively better than the other, but it depends on... Uh, you know what you 're looking for and what problem you 're actually trying to solve
4: well one of the problems there for a lot of people is identifying which you need uh, requires understanding what your threat model is mm-hmm. and most humans do have never have never heard that phrase, <laughs> let alone had thoughts about it right so these decisions are then made for them and they choose based on usability they choose based on where their friends are they choose based on which chat messenger has inline gifts rather than which one has end to end encryption mm-hmm. um, and people make Poor choices, uh, not because they don't care, but because they don't they don't know and they don't understand what they're they're necessarily giving up. Um, yeah, that's a challenge.
1: Yeah. Interested in raising capital through a security token offering? StartEngine is your full stack solution. StartEngine, a regulated ICO platform with a community of over 155,000 registered users, was founded in 2014 by Howard Marks, co-founder of Activision Blizzard. Since the implementation of the JOBS Act, StartEngine has helped over 160 companies raise capital. In fact, StartEngine can help a company build its own tokens and is creating a secondary market upon which those tokens can be traded. In short, StartEngine provides a complete token ecosystem. If your company wants to launch a security token offering, just go to startengine.com unchained for a free consultation and a 20% discount on future regulated ICO setup services. That's startengine.com slash unchained. This is not legal advice.
0: This ad spot could be yours. Got a great product or service for Unchained or Unconfirmed listeners? Reach out to Raylene at laurashinpodcast at gmail.com to find out about sponsorship opportunities on Unchained and Unconfirmed. Again, that's laurashinpodcast at gmail.com l-a-u-r-a-s-h-i-n podcast at gmail.com One one comment about actually something earlier that Amber said was um, she talked about this uh, how previously there was a separation between money and free speech and um, I actually wanted to just flag for people that this was actually a a moment in an Interview I did with Naval Ravikant on my podcast Unchained where he talked about this, how this was breaking down and it was like easily one of the most tweeted parts of any interview I've ever done. So you guys should go back and check that out. But actually, Amber, you also raised usability, which is actually where I wanted to go next because I'm just curious to know, well, so two things. So I want to hear Alejandro and um, Mega talk about what, it is that has made certain, um, alternatives usable by people and what people have actually been using on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also, you know, kind of try to analyze, like, why do you think those things worked and who was using them? Was it just limited kind of like to a certain subset of people or did it kind of, you know, gain wider adoption? And if not, what were the, um, challenges and stuff? So does one of you want to start?
2: Yeah, so I, I have spent uh, the summer working at Zcash, Zcash company, um, for those that you don't know, uh, it's a cryptocurrency that is being developed here in the US, uh, led by Zuka Wilcox, a prominent cryptographer, and got a great team, really big fan of, of, of the team they got there. And I uh, they care a lot about privacy, they care a lot about censorship resistance, and Zuko particularly cares about what's going on in Venezuela. So he set up this group, uh, which Jill Carlson and I have been working over the summer to research how cryptocurrency could help in, in Venezuela. And we have found that usability is a big issue, mm-hmm. because the people who are able to access cryptocurrency are tech savvy. They, they have a way to access a computer. They have a way to access... And most people in Minnesota don't have computers. Most, most people... Like about 45% of the population has phones, which is pretty significant. But there, there hasn't been anyone who's developed like a phone app that is very easy to use that I could point to my grandma or to my mom even, and, and they could like get it and, and start accessing a, like an open money system. And that's not... Good news for the majority of people because you need someone that really leads you into it, and uh, the lucky few are getting the benefits of cryptocurrency. So if you have someone who taught you how to use local bitcoins and like work out the whole thing about the reputation system and how to buy and how to sell, like where the commissions are and so on, or if you have someone that uh, is using AirTM, uh, which is another service that lets people access like digital US dollars in Venezuela, uh, those have been recently blocked by the government and now you need a VPN to access. It's pre- still pretty easy for someone that's tech savvy to install a VPN and access it, but I couldn't tell my mom to do like, you know, it. It's, it's difficult for most people that aren't in tech. So yes, we, it's definitely clear that the top problem is the lack of a product. So I, I like to use this example a lot. WhatsApp popularized the use of end-to-end encryption. And we had suddenly billions of people who were able to, tr- to communicate with each other securely. And since they focused on usability, since they focused on being available on every platform possible, and they later incorporated encryption, they did a great service to the world. And we feel like, I feel like we need to do that for money.
4: Yeah, And as a very small, subtle point on that, it's the the same exact encryption that Facebook implemented at the same time, all of which originated from Signal Messenger. The only difference there is that if you use it via WhatsApp, it is turned on by default. You do not need to opt in to using that end-to-end encryption. If you use it in Facebook, you have to click three different menus for every individual bilateral chat, then it's encrypted. Hmm. That's the kind of software design decisions that really matter to billions of people. Yeah,
0: uh-huh. Mega. Do you want to dive into usability and?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that. Um, I think uh, the the reason that WeChat is so widely used, including WeChat Pay, um, is that it it is like so easily accessible. Uh, you mentioned like inline emojis and gifts, like. That's a big part of why people use it. Like, everybody loves that stuff. Um, it's cats, and, man. It's always just going to come back to the cat again. It's, it's all about <laughs> cats and bunnies. Like, seriously, like, um, yeah, I remember when WeChat first became popular in China. Like, um, a, yeah, a big part of it was, like, sending all this, like, kind of cutesy stuff to your boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, and um, in, terms, in terms of, like, e-payment, um, I think one of the reasons that... Um, it's it's sort of like one of those things that it's it's sort of like a snowball effect. Like um, it started just being available everywhere. You could use it for every transaction. The cost to um, the, both the payer and the pay uh, the the recipient um, was like either zero or negligible. So um, even somebody who runs a fruit stand on the side of the road, um, you know, they can use WeChat Pay to accept payment, right? Um, so that can kind of convenience factor, I think, trumped any kind of con- um, considerations about privacy. The other thing I would point out is like, you know... When it comes to China um, like I think adoption of these kind of, kinds of like native platforms for um, you know communications and services um, it's, it's mirrored um, the development of, so, of domestically created social media in a lot of ways like the reason that these services have become so popular and so widely used so quickly is not just that they're user friendly it's because um, the, any kind of competition from outside of China has effectively been cut out so if we talk about encrypted apps for instance, there are a lot of people in China who are tech savvy they want to like a more private alternative, and um, those people were using stuff like whatsapp signal and um, and telegram um, you know until probably about a year and a half ago when uh, basically i guess a cur- probably what happened is a critical mass of people started using it, and the government just sort of put a kibosh on it. So some these the thing about these apps is, like, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but what's clear is that they're not reliable, because you can't predict when they're going to work and when they're going to not. Well, so wait, think,
0: how, how did they do that? Like, I'm using it on my phone, and my, how, how did they know that I'm using it? Like, I don't understand that. So
3: it's not personal, it's just, like, you know, it's it's different in different parts of the country, but if you think think about how that works, so, like, if I send you, we're both in Beijing, right, if I send you a WhatsApp saying, like, hey, let's meet up at 6 p.m. for dinner, I don't know if you got it or not, right? So it's like, even if it works that day, I don't know that it's going to work, and you might not get my message, which, you know, which means I didn't accomplish my goal,
0: right? Wait, and so somehow the government makes it? Uh, unreliable? or yeah. firewall. The, the
4: traffic yeah. was rerouted, basically. So um, there, when it came to Signal, they, they simply disallowed all service that was coming through uh, from the Signal servers, and Signal attempted to domain front via Amazon so that it would look like all of your traffic was coming from Amazon. Amazon actually shut that down and was able to send them like a cease and desist. And that's when it comes to decentralization of code itself, right. that's something that where, when you have a specific company that owns a specific code base and you can call somebody and say stop it, then that's how something gets gets shut down. And there's really no alternative because you need that network adoption right. to have a community that can connect. It's it, you can't have a decentralized app that does that necessarily until you start talking about um, you know ICOs or <laughs> you know,
5: right. DApps right. at this point. And actually, just to make one point on the usability piece, I really think it's. This is crucial, and I think it's important that we don't underrate the usability discussion around this. There's been such a myopic focus for the last few years in decentralization technology on just the technology, which is incredibly important. We have to get the technology right to make it work and be effective, but technology alone is not enough. It is like developing a new medicine that cures a disease and not thinking about how to lower the cost of that medicine or distribute it to people that need it just having it isn't enough in a lab somewhere. What we need is the technology, and then thinking about usability. How do you make that technology actually usable for people? How do you make that medicine accessible for people? And the distribution. How do you then get that into people's hands? Even if you built a beautiful, easy-to-use app that had the best of decentralized technology to solve a currency problem or surveillance problem or whatever it may be, and you didn't have a way to actually get that in people's hands and make them want to use it, that is a useless thing to have. And so I think we're now in this Kind of wave of decentralized technology getting to this place of the professionalization of the space and increasingly seeing people think about usability and user adoption, things Alejandro is talking about in Venezuela, that are so critical now that we've developed a basis for that technology. you got to work on how to get it to people and make sure people keep using it because otherwise it'll sit there in the lab and, and never have any effect on the actual real issues in the world like right. currency destabilization or surveillance or censorship.
0: Yeah, and just getting exactly to that point with uh, the China and the firewall, is there any way around that or like, you know, can decentralized technologies get around that kind of firewall or no? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify,
3: the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell.
4: Yes and no. I think it depends kind of what we're talking about. Um, Metadata analysis-resistant protocols are a completely different area of study Mm. um, that has to do with making it through and past um, the, those kind of firewalls are making it at least uh, difficult to find out what's going on so you know when people are doing stuff that you would want to censor. Um, and uh, certainly there are a lot of projects, you've probably heard of the Tor project as well. Um, there have been several other projects f- over the last several decades that people have worked on to either further decentralize or further um, you know, remove those single points of failure for people that are just trying to navigate the internet. It's not, you can't just throw a VPN, VPN in there and necessarily uh, call it a day.
5: Yeah, uh, and just to build on what Amber's saying there, one of the promises of decentralized technology, and I'll explain what this means, is that decentralized technology moves the advantage from the attacker to the defender. In a system with centralized technology, it's always a cat and mouse game for trying to get around the great firewall or whatever you're trying to avoid. Always a cat and mouse game of you know, technology improving that makes it easier to get around. And then you know, kind of the attackers, China for example, catching up and figuring out how to you know, invade that and get back into the protocol and then it develops again, develops again. And what I think is so powerful about this technology is that it moves that advantage from the attacker to the defender. In a centralized system model, nation states, if that's what we're talking about, have an advantage. Because they can walk into Facebook's headquarters or Google's headquarters like we're talking about and say, hey, this is the deal. If you want to operate in our country, you put your servers here, we have access to them, and that's the way it's going to be. Advantage, attacker, right? But in this decentralized world, it's not that it's a magic wand that we can wave and say, well, now the Great Firewall doesn't work anymore. China has no chance at ever defending against this. What it does say is that the defender, the people that are using it, now have the advantage, and that people developing the technology can build it knowing that it's their turn to make things better, and more uh, attack avoidant, uh, more resistant to to threats. And then China may come up with a way to block that somehow, the signal example, we're gonna take down these servers. Signal can then say, well, we're gonna distribute this a little bit further. China Mm -hmm. figures out a way to attack that. They can distribute it a little bit further. And that advantage shift is what we're going for. And eventually, the hope is that with some of this decentralized technology, the advantage becomes so big that it becomes functionally impossible to broadly attack these things in a highly surveyed or or censored Mm -hmm. way.
4: It, yeah, it gets it can get very complicated. though. <laughs> no, I mean I think, and we haven't really seen a function, functioning, um, decentralized, autonomous sort of application. Uh, I think the the Ethereum DAO was the the first one, and it blew up relatively quickly. Um, but uh, the problem is, besides just cat gifs, but on the internet, no one knows you're a cat. Um, on the internet, no one knows whether or not you're an intelligence operative. So when you don't actually have a, uh, a, a specific company that has a jurisdiction and has said, you know, as Google did previously, um, we're not going to do this, this is our line in the sand. Maybe, maybe they change the, the way that they're going to operate, but it's in the news and we know about it. Um, the best defense that we have against that in a, in a decentralized software sense would be just be that it's open source, which requires that qualified people with the right eyeball look at it at the right time, and then raise some sort of alarm bells. But as you decentralize that control, you are giving away that trust, that we have placed trust. Every app that is on your phone, you are implicitly trusting the people that have written that software right. to not just be completely doing something that they, um, is disingenuous and malicious to you.
0: Yeah, I actually also want to circle back to, um, something that you mentioned earlier, which is that so far, um, for most of this conversation, we've been talking about decentralized technologies as being kind of the solution, um, to these problems, uh, kind of, uh, being perpetrated by these other author- authoritarian regimes. But Amber did allude to earlier how obviously some of them are also trying to use this, um, for their own ends. And Alejandro mentioned that as well. Um, and so even though this is like a slightly negative note, although, uh, I think this is going to be our last official question, then we might have one more question from an audience member. Um, but I'm just curious to know kind of like how you guys think authoritarian regimes are actually trying to use these technologies, um, you know, and why. Like, is it to avoid sanctions or to oppress their people in other ways or, like, wh- how are they using them?
6: Can we just going down?
2: Yeah, well, I think that you could argue that the Petro, if well executed, could effectively skirt sanctions and not just the Petro but, like, other cryptocurrencies, right? Like, because they, they weren't receiving payments in Petros, they were re- they wanted to get money in Bitcoin or Ether and what have you. And uh, I think that there's there's some evidence that North Korea has hackers right. that target computers in the West that have, and then they request uh, like payment in Bitcoin or in Ether. So they they are definitely interested in Money that is able to flow freely across borders, and that's the way that they they can get like an advantage of, of this. But I yeah, think, I think what, that
0: uh, that WannaCry hack yes was yes. North Korea, and yeah. that's where they were like locking your computer and then requesting Bitcoin be paid for the ransom. And I think the other thing is that there were some really big crypto hacks in um, crypto exchange hacks in Korea, South Korea. And um, at least a theory is that North is behind those.
2: Yes, yes. So I think there's definitely a concern there that we should all be aware of and that we should try to mitigate. But I, I, I would refer back to your point that this is supposed to give the advantage to the defender and not to the attacker. And like this is supposed to be give the power, the shift of power back to the individual rather than the state. So it shouldn't matter that much if the state is able to do this uh, like as an individual actor because there's many, many other individual actors who will overwhelm the state with their good intentions or with, with their good behavior.
0: Yeah, although the problem in North Korea is that, of course, the already person does not have access to the internet, so yes. um, only the government does. Um, all right, so does anybody else want to add anything to this?
3: I, I would just, um, just add quickly about North Korea. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason that North Korea is... Um, interested in cryptocurrency is um, because they they literally do not have access to global financial markets um, because of like the encroachment of international sanctions. So, I mean, if you think about North Korea's government as essentially an international criminal enterprise, like, they will use lots of different ways to um, smuggle money in and out of their country, like, everything from um, putting it in their diplomats' suitcases, to selling drugs, um, to like, you know, just all manner of illicit commerce. And I think they see crypto currency is one more vehicle for that. Um, and I think that's interesting because um, it shows that, like, you know, a currency that sort of promotes privacy um, and is sort of outside the norms of the global financial system has all of the kind of benefits and pitfalls of that. So for somebody who is engaging in something that we would consider legitimate, right, um, like something like, um, you know, advocacy or, um, or something like that. Um, that, that can be a very positive thing. But it also empowers people who are seeking to use that privacy to do something that would ultimately be harmful, I think.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- at the end of the day, technology doesn't have morals. Exactly. Technology exactly. can be used by good actors or bad. Yeah. And, uh, and it's up to the, those actors. You can develop a utopian or a dystopian world for any technology where medicine or genetic testing or anything is used in certain ways. And it can be used by good people or bad people. And I think it's up to us as people that are building these applications and building the usage patterns, building the distribution, to make sure that this new set of technology around decentralized technologies is used by good people for good purposes and not by bad people for bad purposes.
0: All right, so I think we have time for one, maybe two questions. There's one right up front, and I have to give up my mic so I can easily walk it over. Oh, okay. (laughs)
7: Thanks, thank you all. I know it's the point of a working lunch, but it feels very rude to eat while you're all talking, so sorry about that. Um, Laura Jen, I I obviously listen to your podcast, thank you for your content. Mega, I saw you speak on Thursday at the Blockstack event. Um, My name is Faye. I recently joined Masari, um, which is which is a startup bringing transparency to the crypto economy. And I joined as head of design, so I'm really interested in the direction of usability in the conversation from today. I mean, obviously, it's kind of under my charge in the design industry in general to bring usability and accessibility to to this world. but i think there's a two-pronged approach to that one is making the products usable and accessible and legible and the other is making the landscape at large usable and accessible and decipherable and i really think that speaks to what you were saying about you know most people not knowing their threat model so i feel like the branch number one easy enough designers can, you know there's there are best practices to do that but the prong number two of of the mission here is harder harder to think about how to approach, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about bringing usability to the ecosystem at large and helping people understand the need for this technology.
0: Oh.
4: Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like that's a gimme since I'm working on building software development tools that <laughs> drive usability, but um, yeah, I, I think that it's 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 maybe not just as easy to make a bad an application that does bad things as usable as an application that does good things, but the um the application that is more usable is the one that people will probably choose and uh historically um there there is generally a trade off between uh security and privacy or convenience, and a lot of i, I think a sentiment that kind of runs through people, the communities of people who care, is like, well, other people should just care enough to get over it. And if they understood the world that we, the way that we do, then they would see the value in making clicking this extra button or understanding these different settings or um, only using these three hops to get to the, your final destination.
2: Or using long passwords and yeah. stuff like that, right? Because it takes work. It does take a lot of work to be secure on the internet. And that, that's... There's... Little way around it, like, right? Like, that you could make certain things more usable, but ultimately, you need to, like, everything is in crypto, like, in cryptography, it's protected by randomness, and you're, like, hiding in the randomness. And you need to be able to remember, like, a passphrase, or you need, you, like, there's, I I feel like there's just little recourse against, you know, very, like, fundamental things, We should, we try to make it better or easier, but. At the end of the day, it does take a little bit of adjustment, and, I think.
4: And this is a very, very real problem because if, um, if you don't make it usable for people that are not trying to do malicious things, like just buy drugs with Bitcoin, if you can't get people to pay for stuff at Starbucks, then you have no noise around your signal. And then it's very easy to um, make the claim that, that governments should say, well, we, we don't want this within our borders because we don't see the legitimate usability.
5: Yeah, and I'd also just say it's about communicating to people what the core idea of the technology is. And it has been true for every technological revolution. At the beginning of the internet, people didn't understand why this thing needed to exist and just needed to be bludgeoned over the head by people saying, this gets something you type anywhere else in the world instantly in front of that person. And that then leads to websites, that then leads to everything that we have today. Same thing with radio, telephone, every piece of technology. And the core idea behind this decentralization is that this does the things you already do but without relying on anyone to do it. Mm -hmm. And that idea just has to be communicated over and over again to people Mm -hmm. until they've realized what applications can be built with that idea.
0: Okay, I think we have time just for one more question, and there's a woman in the back who's been signaling to me that she Mm -hmm. has a question for a little while, so um, I will hand the mic off to you.
6: Yes, hi, I'm Marisol. I came actually from Norway. Um, So I do work with blockchain, and I also... Uh, I'm evangelist of IOTA as well. So I go around really thinking, and I work with digitalization. So I'm leader of uh, digitalization in Equinorist at So um, my latest adventure is enterprise data. And in that, I really, uh, from being an entrepreneur, trying to do solar energy and everything, I really change. My mentality on how we just look at commodities and everything that we have in the wrong way, right so it 's things that we have data and everything is, is ours right but, uh, but we are moving to our system of decentralizations where data actually is a function as a service right and then that 's when we start creating these things so when we talk about a blockchain or IOTA or distributed technology, anything that it comes is just the back end of the architecture, right? But at the end, what we are trying to create here is businesses of people data by also ensuring that they get the service they want at the moment they want, right? And with the self sovereign, the traceability, and the accountability because they have to be accounted. Right now, we are not accountable for what Google does for us, right? Or anything. So, I want to ask you all, what do you think of really the disruption of Industry 6.0 will be? Because uh, I'm launching my company actually, I had distributed something. And this is actually a platform for integrated. So, integrate blockchain, integrate IOTA, integrate everybody, like a Netflix of data, right? So, it is that integration. What do you think of the integration of the data as a function? Right, where people actually say, "Hey, I can do this for you," right?" Or "I can have an artificial intelligence or a GT half, and then everybody just plug in the same place. Mm-hmm. I's that difficult? I know that the security for China and the firewalls, right? I mean, it's, I don't see it as a really difficult thing, because when you just distribute this, you make it encryptable, triple encryptable, like anything. I think that there is a, there is a way around it. The problem is customers and people getting empowered.
5: Yeah, I can, I can jump in on that. I think the, the, what has to happen here is the simplest applications have to be built first for people to use. And I think a lot of those will be around ownership of data, exactly what you're talking about, that that is a, a core benefit, that there is so much fear right now and uncertainty around who owns my data? Is it these organizations? Is it the government? Who is it? And so there'll be simple applications built first that encourage people to take over ownership of their own data. And once people have their own data, that's what everything is built off of. Every single service we use in our lives, centralized or decentralized, relies on our data, relies on us inputting it and it having it. And so we'll build these simple versions and then from there, everything gets integrated. And I think up here, and and speaking on this panel, I think we're probably all dreaming of a world where most, if not all, of the technology we use is decentralized in some way. Mm -hmm. And so you have to start with the simple pieces and that'll get more and more integrated into your life as more services begin to use those decentralized data providers instead of the centralized hubs that we use today. Uh, and it's just a long path to get there. I think we've got a long way to go. We're, yeah. we're very early in the ecosystem, but it's working on things like that that are so critical to get us to that next stage where all of these services can be decentralized and we don't need to rely on the central parties anymore.
2: Uh, also, there are companies working hard on the problem of how to aggregate data that is private and how to perform analytics on stuff that is... Uh, Anonymized. So Apple has been doing some work in differential privacy. You can look that up. It's it's uh, an area of research that is active in the company because Apple really does care, but like unlike Google and Facebook about this. And uh, you know there there are like many projects, and maybe Amber could talk a bit more about that.
4: That is the most important next step in all of this. Is um, that uh, it's it's not just a about decentralization for decentralization's sake, but I, I assume a lot of people have seen Wall-E, where like everybody gets kind of like fat, just staring at their monitors, and like loves kind of the. You know, robots giving them food or whatever. That's kind of how we are with surveillance capitalism today. You, you get a wonderful um, customer experience where Netflix tells you everything you might ever want to see uh, in a predictive way and you never have to leave the couch. right? So why on earth or how are we supposed to convince people to take back their data if all of a sudden nothing knows anything about them anymore? Yeah. Um, it's not a better user experience. It's not a compelling reason for people to change. So unless we can provide the same kind of business value and the same experience, experiences over that decentralized data that is private it's it's i i don't know how we're going to make these applications take off and that's a decade away from being pragmatically usable probably yeah at least
0: okay well i think we're gonna to have to take this as a as an optimistic note at first. it's like i'm always a ray of sunshine right i know t- it's 10 years <laughs> out but you know we're we're aiming for that um an optimistic note to end on so thank you so much for our fabulous panelists thank you for the fabulous questions and i hope you enjoyed our panel
5: thank you